welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Joining me today on the Polygamer Podcast is independent game developer and artist extraordinaire, Kara Stone. Hi, Kara. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you. It was such a pleasure to meet you at Boston Fig 2014 and then again at different games in New York City this past March. Yeah. Now you get around, but you are not located in either of those places. You are in Canada? Yeah, I'm in Toronto or I'm somewhat back and forth between Montreal and Toronto. But you are nonetheless apparently willing to travel to get to all these different indie game events. Yeah. I mean, I like traveling uh, and being able to go places is always a good opportunity and like meet different people and show different crowds. Sometimes it's easier than others because some places offer like grants and, and funding, um, but some don't. So indie game developers can get grants to attend conventions? Yep. Is there any particular resource or grant that you recommend for somebody who wants to explore those opportunities? Yeah, I mean, it depends uh, where you are. Like Canada Arts Council has ones for Canadian artists, and they also have ones for international artists if you're coming to Canada. Things like different games, they pay for your travel costs, and and some other conferences do as well, like Queerness in Games uh, coming up in San Francisco in October. It also covers some of your travel costs, and so... Yeah, it kind of just depends um, where you're applying and what you're going for. Excellent. Thank you. There will be links to those in the show notes. So I first encountered your works at Boston Fig, as I mentioned, where you were showing off Sex Adventure, Mm -hmm. uh, which was recently poured to be Cyber Sex Adventure. And I've since encountered your other games, such as Feminist Confessional and Techno Tarot, which I think you were showing off at different games. Mm -hmm. How long have you been developing games? I've been making games for uh, two or three years. Uh, Before games, I was doing film and I started doing like interactive video which is very similar to video games or exactly the same thing but yeah in in this like specific indie culture world for like two years and what prompted you to move into that space well I always played games and uh it was just never an option like I mean I've been in arts forever and no one ever talked about making video games like it seemed just so far off like I couldn't even imagine really who made them um maybe some like white guys in California or uh somehow people in Edmonton Canada making like Bioware games but yeah I I ran across uh, an organization in Toronto called Dames Making Games and they were the first people that told me that I could make games and people like me could make games and um that such a thing of like indie games exists. And so I got into a incubator that they ran or a long program workshop where I made my first game and it was a skeleton of medication meditation, which I later um, like finished developing and and put on the app store and stuff. And so since then, uh, yeah, yeah, I made a bunch more games and really dove in. Dames making games. Is that similar to other organizations I've heard of like app camp for girls or girls can code? Yeah, I don't know those ones, but it is, I'm assuming, like, similar. It's similar to Pixels in Montreal. Yeah, they're just, you know, an organization that's for women and trans people and gender non-binary people to help um, not only make games, but either, like, get jobs in the industry or further their career, but also, like, have a community of other uh, game makers and players. So that community, that's what dames making games 
provided to you that you couldn't find for yourself. For example, say if you want to self-educate on making games through lynda.com or by buying a book at Barnes & Noble, having that community really gave you a, a much better environment and motivation to make games. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I wouldn't be making games if it wasn't for them. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I have a pretty good idea that it that I wouldn't be. Um, and even in a community, like game making can feel very lonely and uh, isolated. Um, and so it's nice to be able to go to events and workshops. And, and when I go like traveling um, to know people in different places and feel like a wider sense of belonging. I'm sure that's especially true in the indie space where so many people are working independently on projects. They don't have these huge teams that BioWare has. It can yeah. seem very isolating. Mm -hmm. So how would you describe the kinds of games that you make? What is sort of the, I want to talk about some of the specific games, but generally speaking, what is sort of the connective tissue that describes your games? Mm -hmm. I think a lot, uh, almost, or every single one of my games is about, uh, like, feminism, feminism and feelings and, yeah, feelings and mental health, um, more like an effective view of, of mental health. I feel like that's probably the only running thread. I think there's a little bit of, a, like, sense of humor or weirdness to them as well. So you didn't feel called to make a run-and-gun shooter or a match-three puzzler? <laughs> Actually, at first I did, you know. It's hard. It Sometimes when I go to a lot of, like, indie game events or I'm around a lot of indie game people, it's hard not to be like, oh, I should be making this kind of game or this kind of game is gonna is what people want and that's what's fun. Um, it's hard not to, you know, fall into that and just make a game like everybody else is making. So what drew you to make games about mental health, if I may ask? Um, it was like a personal journey. Medication, meditation. Um, well, I made a previous uh, video that I... The first thing I ever did about mental health was a video called Polaroid Panic. And it was over a summer, like three years ago, that I had a Polaroid camera and I took a picture of myself every time I had a panic attack for three months. So I just carried this camera everywhere. And then got, I don't know, 40 photos or something. And um, I made it into an installation and kind of came about into a, a short video piece, like two minutes. Um, and from that, like showing it and talking to people about it, it was so nice, <laughs> like so honest. And I felt so genuine. And um, I really connected with people more from making it, I found, than the previous stuff that I had made before. Um, like people would talk to me about their feelings and I would talk back and we would have conversations and um, that was so lovely. And so when I got into making games and I was doing my first game at um, Dames Making Games, there was, I kind of felt like, I, you know, that desire to be like, oh, I should make this kind of game. This is an indie game. This is what people want to play. Um, and I started to do that, but uh, kind of just like lost the passion really early on. And so instead, um, I made medication meditation kind of just as a exploration of my own feelings. Like it's not about me, um, but it's about the things that people have to do to keep living, you know, for those of us with mental health issues. Um, things like 
things that don't get paid attention to in the common narratives of mental illness, like little things like taking your pill at the same time every day or having to do breathing exercises or having to repeat mantras, you know, little things that make um, living a little bit more bearable, but that are kind of uh, mundane and boring. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to explore that in an interactive way. I imagine doing so requires a certain amount of vulnerability, especially your art installation about the panic attacks, showing off those f several instances over the course of three months. I think you said there were 40 of them. That just That's a very intimate moment that you're sharing with a crowd. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, but it, it's, um, I think it's two ways. Like It's intimate, or and it, it is very vulnerable for me to do it, and I don't always like to talk about it. Um, or show people. <laughs> but uh, I find, like, as I said, the more that I can be intimate and the more that I can be vulnerable in the art that I'm making, the more other people respond to it in the same way. Um, so it is like this, this back and forth um, of people relating and expressing more than me just telling, which is why I like video games so much, because it is interactive and people are participating as well instead of just like watching my misery or something. Now, Medication Meditation is a series of daily affirmations, breathing exercises and the like, but you described it as not a self-help game. So how would you describe that game? Well, I think it's more like a funny look on self-help. You know, self-help is so, uh, it can be so damaging. <laughs> But it can also be like really necessary. And I think people have framed self-help uh, recently to be more like self-care. And although there are some, some of the same issues that run through it, like a lot of neoliberalism and individualism and not caring for other people, just caring for yourself, um, there's like an importance to that of like people who need to uh, participate in, in self-care are often the ones that the world is not looking out for, you know, no one else will take care of them or us. Um, so yeah, medication meditation isn't like, it's not trying to make you feel better. Like it's not trying to make the players feel better. It's more just to explore self-help and self-care in a, in a kind of a weird way, like make it seem weird and, um, hard and difficult. So is it an affirmation that it's okay to be having these challenges? What do you mean? Is that an affirmation in the game? Well, for example, I know one per a friend of mine who suffers from anxiety recently felt like people were telling her it's not okay to have anxiety, and that mm -hmm. wasn't the kind of support she needed. So is that one of the things you mean when you refer to self-care, is just accepting you for who you are? Yeah, I mean, that's like one of the biggest parts of it uh, is like radical acceptance of um, kind of trying to lose those like, it should be this way, or I can't feel this way. And a lot of the time, like when people think about answers for mental health, like there's no cure for a lot of us, like it's never going to end. So it's like a daily challenge. And the more people like try to think about the world where mental illness isn't possible, it makes me and other people feel like we don't belong because it will never go away. Um, it's more like a daily struggle. And that's in medication, meditation too, that kind of like um, having to revisit it and nothing ever really being finished and it just being continual. And that, of course, like uh, the hardship of trying to tell yourself that it's okay to feel this way when the whole world is telling you that you should feel differently. 
it sounds like a lot of erasure is happening with the way society thinks people should behave. And we've explored other sorts of representation on this podcast, like uh, racial or gender diversity in game characters. Do you feel that there's the same need for a more diverse and accurate representation of mental health issues in video games? Yeah, I mean, in video games in particular, you know, it's the same with all media. Like, there's not great representation of mental illness. But in video games, mental illness is, like, particularly pertinent because uh, the two times that you ever hear about it is, like, when there are mass shootings by uh, young white men, like the first thing people jump to is like mental illness in video games. Like they play too many video games or want to kill people. Like um, there's a lot of that rhetoric going on. And then inside video games within the representation of the characters, it's like mental illness is used as horror. Like it's always scary. Um, it's in the horror genre. and Or it's like people that need to be shot and killed, like psychos or um, like the people in the first Bioshock, you know, they're just like addicted and you just kill them. Uh, and so it's, it's hard to see like reflections of yourself always be scary or, um, horrible as well as like in the media. Have you played the game Life is Strange? No, I haven't. There's a character in that game who I believe, uh, has depression and I, from what I know of depression, not firsthand, it seems like a fairly accurate portrayal, and that's in episode two of the game. But then in episode four, there's a character who's very violent, and you find out the reason he's violent is due to some indeterminate mental health issue for which he is not taking his medication. Mm. And some critics, perhaps rightly so, suggested that that was sort of a a crutch that the developers were leaning on and not a very fair representation because just because somebody has a mental health issue and or is not taking their medication doesn't mean they're going to be violent. Yeah, I that's such a huge misconception of like the statistics of people with mental illness are so much more likely to be abused or to have been abused and to harm themselves than harm anybody else. Like people without mental illness are more likely to or diagnose mental illness or whatever, are more likely to harm others. Uh, and so there's just so much fear. And I feel like people are so scared of people with mental illness um, because, yeah, I don't know if it's because they think they're going to be violent or like that's an excuse for the fear. Misrepresentation and misunderstanding of mental health issues dates back decades, or if not longer, in this country when we would put people who are suffering from these issues into asylums, which is mm -hmm. not, it was not a place intended to help them. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if what we're experiencing now in pop culture and media is some sort of a trickle down effect from that, some lingering repercussions of these antiquated perceptions. Yeah, definitely. I, like mental illness has such an interesting history throughout, you know, all of time and different cultures have different ways. Like, you know, mental illness, um, was seen often in a really spiritual sense, uh, or um, sometimes were healers and um, soothsayers and fortune tellers. Uh, like there's such a um, a different history, and yeah, uh, the madness and asylums coming about is just like one way of understanding it. Again, like mental illness is one way of understanding feelings because all it really is, like mental illness, isn't a real thing. It's just um, different sets of feelings that people feel in different ways and the kind of like categorization is this very like sciencey um 
North American approach to to understanding people and ourselves. It sounds like that might be a categorization that you don't necessarily find to be useful. Yeah, I actually um, I uh, stay away from for my own reasons. Like I stay away from diagnoses. Like there was one point where I had like four separate diagnoses, and uh, yeah, and then I just realized like that to me it doesn't fit. Like these are set categories that are used to label people, but people don't really like fit exactly in them. Um, very often. And sometimes the stigma that goes along with them and how therapists are going to treat you is really, really rough. And so I found it more useful for me to just look at it as emotional wellness and trying to deal with emotion in a different way. And luckily I've like found people around me that, that support that. Um, so that's not to say like diagnosis is ever bad because I feel like for some people, um, and for me at times, it provides a really big sense of comfort and being like, oh, this is it. Like, I identify with this. This is what's going on with me. Um, so there's like benefits and, and uh, bad things too. It's great that you were able to find that community to support you around that issue, just like you did with Dames Making Games, because that can make all the difference is just having someone to help you through difficult times, to reaffirm your decisions and help get you to those decisions. Totally. We talked about how mental health is perceived in culture. What about games about mental health? Is there a stigma about those as well? I don't know. I don't think so. Because in a previous interview, you said that some typically dudes tend to tell you that your games aren't games, especially stuff like medication, meditation. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that has anything to do with mental illness because they do that for all my games, even like ones that are not about um, mental health or like explicitly about feelings. It's more just because like I'm a woman maker. <laughs> That's it. So, so they're not attacking the content of the game. They're attacking the creator the origin of the game yeah i mean uh, yeah i mean i spoke about this before at different places where yeah it, the content of the game it doesn't matter um to how the game is being categorized or how the art piece is being categorized uh and this is beyond just games you know women and racialized people doing folk art you know it's nothing about the actual art that they're making like the physical thing it's because who the maker is is determining what the final output is called or labeled um so with video games i find a lot of the time uh men who are doing experimental video games much like i am and women around me are doing they get really celebrated for breaking down set rules of what video games could be whereas me and and other women are like well that's not a real video game so and so it's very hard to be in this like indie game sphere when half of the people are being like oh that's not a real video game so you're not actually contributing anything to this culture or you're using this culture for your own benefit whereas um it's uh, we're so aware that if i were a white man, things would be different and, and people would respond to my games differently. I haven't done a analysis of the demographics, but it seems like many of these games, uh, yours, D Depression Quest, for example, are being made by women, or at least those are the ones that I'm aware of because of the backlash they've received from usually white dudes. Mm -hmm. uh, there's certainly the game Actual Sunlight by Will O'Neill, which explores some similar issues. And I, I haven't asked him what his reception has been. And perhaps he has a very different experience than what I perceive, but I haven't 
heard of any public lambasting of him or his game because he's a guy who made a game like that. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. related. Mm-hmm. That's that's really interesting, really unfortunate. In a previous interview, you also said that your game is very different from Depression Quest in some ways. You did not want to make a game like that. Can you tell me a little bit more about the distinction between those two games? <laughs> I can tell you a little bit more about like media changing things that you say (laughs) because uh yeah i mean i was describing other games about mental in that interview i was describing other games about mental illness and i was trying to talk about my approach to them uh and of course the way that uh it's framed is like i don't like depression quest i want to make a game that's so different um but that that's not how it is at all um so i mean yeah that's it there was, there's, there's no real difference, I guess, between the two. Um, maybe we had different goals and they're about different parts of, of mental illness, but um, they're both good in their own ways. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And two games don't have to be identical in order to accomplish similar goals. And mm-hmm. I, I certainly wasn't trying to create some sort of an artificial rivalry between a medication meditation and depression quest. They're both excellent titles. Yeah, but when I saw that, I mean, like, I asked for that to be taken out because I know the way that it was going to be read, um, but they refused to, which is too bad. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's okay. That's how it goes. Yeah, that's one of the dangers in talking with the press is, yeah. you know, sometimes they, they're they in the business of telling a good story, and mm-hmm. sometimes it doesn't always come across the way the people in the story wish. Yeah. I hope that this podcast does not feel, fall privy to the same thing. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to get an angry email from you in a couple of weeks. Take that podcast down. And if you tell me to, I will. So there. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's see. So I want to talk about one of the other games you made, which is Sex Adventure. Mm-hmm. That's the game I saw at Boston Fig back when it was a SMS game. So people would pay $5 and they would have 24 hours in which to engage in a text-based interactive fiction where they're chatting with a bot who engages in sexting or you know, sex-based texting. What prompted you to create that game? Because that addresses a very different topic from, say, medication meditation. Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of similarities, but it's definitely like upfront, really different. At the time, I was thinking a lot about digital intimacy, you know, and how our feelings are translated through the medium that we're using. Um, and of course, we'll think about cyborgs and uh, AIs in the future um, because it's just like a fun and interesting topic. And um, yeah, so thinking about our feelings. Uh, for each other, but also like, what would a robot think about humans and our human sexuality? Like, our constructs are so. People often think that they're so embedded and so objectively real, and yet over like the history of of all of humans, there have been such different inter- interpretations of sexuality, and it's constantly changing. Um, so, just kind of wanted to explore that through a very funny game you know it's more funny than anything else so is this sort of a predictive look at what the future of sex or cyber sex might be in a way (laughs) yes but uh not because we'll be sexting with bots but because of there's like so much breakdown like in sex adventure um like the bot kind of breaks down and leads you on paths that you didn't want to go 
And I think you always have to, when working with technology, but also with people, um, you kind of have to allow for them to do their thing as well. You know, we expect computers to do exactly what we want them to do. And oftentimes, like, programs are are gendered, like Siri or Cortana. You know, they're both, like, we call Siri a she. Um, and because we expect uh, it to be our servant and to do exactly what we want. And yet when thinking about AI or thinking about relationships with other people, uh, that it's not that way. It can never be that way, that there's always going to be like a multiplicity of desires and there in some conflict. Unless we do actually succeed in creating a Stepford wife or husband. Yes. Yeah, sure. And when you talk sure. about Siri and Cortana, that does seem to be in a way the direction we're going is creating the perfect servant. Yes. Mhm. The perfect servant woman. I mean, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah. Did you see the movie Her? I did. What did you think of that? I thought it was interesting. Any particular aspects? I liked the like constant battle between people being like or in myself included when watching it, I was like, is this feminist? Is this not feminist? Oh, that was anti-feminist, but this is feminist. You know, trying to make it into this like really clear if it's feminist or if it is not feminist. And so there, I mean, thought it was interesting and realistic in that it was complicated. There was, com- it was complicated, like how much agency um, the AI had as, as like this gendered uh, thing. Um, and yet how much uh, she was imposed upon and created by someone else. That question of agency, I think, was probably the most interesting thing. I've heard some people describe that film as the ultimate objectification of women because the mm-hmm. female main character is never seen. She's just a thing that the main character can literally put in his pocket. Yeah. And he can whip her out whenever he wants. Yeah. At least at first. Yeah, exactly. At least at first. And then, I mean, I see the argument of like, you know, she leaves him and she goes off with other people and... Um, she desires like a different uh, kind of life than what he's offering her. I see it too. It kind of reminds me of the more recent film, Ex Machina. Oh, I haven't seen it. Oh, I won't share any spoilers though. <laughs> but there is a movie review describing how it's very much a feminist film and I can see their perspective. Yeah, I've heard that as well. But it's the same thing, like a very too, yeah, it could be or it also could really not be. Right, because at the same time, this is spoiler free. The female character is a manufactured being mm-hmm. and that could also be construed as a form of objectification. Yeah. So it's very, it's very unclear. It's very nuanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but going back to sex adventure, I would like to know who would you say was the game's target audience when you created it? Like who did you hope would be playing this game? I wanted all different kinds of people to be playing it. Um, when I was making it, I didn't, think about it too much other than I knew I knew that people would assume uh, that it is made in a very like heteronormative way and also assume that it's made by a man um, and so I did play with those expectations a little bit uh, but it's definitely not designed like solely for uh, hetero men to like be surprised at other kinds of sexuality Um uh, yeah, so it is for for other people too, of like all genders and bodies and stuff. 
It's interesting that people might assume it was written by a guy because I was introduced to you first of all and then mm. to your work. Mm. And so I've never been able to separate the product from its creator. And so mm. I wonder if that influenced my perception of the game in some unconscious way. Probably because uh, I know or I've had other people like talk about the game and be like, oh, you made this game? Like there is such an assumption, even some media articles about it, like when they play it, it's or when they write about it, it's definitely um, trying to make it fit into this like very hetero box that people would expect and kind of want it to be. Um, and yet I think the game is so queer and really can't be disentangled from that, uh, though people really do try. And I wonder how much it is like of me in the way of the game itself. Like it's of course going to have that expectation, but also in like marketing it or calling it sexed adventure. I don't know. When you said the game is so queer, exactly how do you mean that? Uh, in that the bot like doesn't have a sexuality and it confuses body parts. Like it's not um, ever like desiring men or women or sometimes it's both, sometimes it's neither. Um, and kind of uh, takes takes you on different storylines that aren't necessarily like hetero romantic or um or heteronormative and so yeah that like kind of uh non-sexuality or sexuality of multiplicity that the bot has um feels really really queer so does that mean the game is likely to put people in situations that don't conform to their own self-identified sexuality? For example, as a straight, white, cisgendered male, might I be playing this game and be sent some dick pics? Yeah, definitely. And how should I respond to that? <laughs> you just go with it. I mean, <laughs> there's there's not much that you can... I mean, you can replay it a bunch. Like, once you have the game, you can replay it over and over. Um, but I have definitely gotten emails being like, how do I make this sex bot a woman? You know, like going into making it, I didn't, I purposely did not want to do something that was like, enter your, your uh, body type and your, what kind of genitals you have and what kind of um, person you're into, you know, do you like men or women or uh, whatever? Like I didn't want it to, you fill out a form and then it creates something for you. I wanted it to seem as if the bot was agentic, you know, was it, it, and throughout all of the storylines, you learn more about its feelings and uh, what it is desiring. And sometimes the bot becomes really violent and sometimes it becomes really sad and sometimes it becomes like really full of philosophy. So, yes. Mm. So just like an interactive fiction game, is there a plot that players can go back and play the game often enough that they can piece it all together and have a story? Well, there's if you play once, you'll get a full one side of the story. But there are like 21, I think, different endings and different stories that you can go on. But they're different every time. You get the full picture if you just play once. Going back to talking about how the game is marketed and its relation to the creator, do you think that the identity of the creator should matter? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, is it important to you that people recognize that this game was created by a woman? Maybe not. I don't think it's it's that important. I think if you play it and uh, 
I think it's more important to like lose the expectations of what sexting would be like um, or who games are made for. I think that's probably um, a more important thing to lose that that being like oh this video game is made for women this video game is made for people with mental illness or this video game is made for white men um I think that's like a more important thing to lose other than rather than having to like know who made it or like what gender what sexuality um the person is who made it no, and I would totally agree with that. That's very consistent with the recent moves that the retail chain Target has made with ungendering their toys. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that anybody can play with anything regardless of what body parts they have. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, on the creator side of the coin, we've been talking on this podcast about the need for more diversity among creators, that more stories are being told, and very often that takes the form of more women in games. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, and I'm just thinking out loud, if it is important that we have more women making games, is it also therefore important that w- gamers know more women are making games? Yeah. I mean, I can I can see um, the yes and no of like, uh, sometimes women kind of feel like, per- especially women in like AAA studios kind of feel paraded out um, being like, look, we have women. And yet on the other hand, I feel like it's so important to be able to see uh, women and racialized people and gender non-binary people in these, in these um, roles that are creating and being influential because it's really inspiring and it inspires more people to be a part of that world and it really changes it. So I see the value and importance, but I would never hate on someone who who doesn't really want to be personally known for their gender or for their sexuality or anything. Yeah, it's a very tricky balancing act because nobody gets into the industry because they want to represent their demographic. They get in it because they love the medium and they want to make games. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very tricky. Going back to Sex Adventure, I have, I hope this isn't inappropriate. I'm wondering, the game has a lot of artwork, and I mentioned Dick Pixon specifically, and I, I don't need to know too many details, but where'd you get all the, those pictures? <laughs> I love all the, like, the prefaces to this question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not asking you for names and numbers, basically. Yes, um, I sourced them from my friends. So I asked a bunch of my good friends to send any pictures they're comfortable sharing. So they're all like, you know, owned by me. They're not someone else's body who I don't know if I have permission to use or not. Or like who who sometimes with naked people on the Internet, you don't always know if they gave their consent. I mean, you can assume. But anyway, so, yeah, I asked my friends. And so I know that they're all like over 21 and uh, gave consent specifically to have their bodies be used in this way. So rather than go and source them online, like through Creative Commons or some other uh, so, some other website, you create your own artwork pool, basically. That, yeah. way, that way you could verify where they were coming from. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Uh, Sex Adventure was recently ported from Texter, which is the original medium in which it was played, using text messages to Twine, so that now people can play it on their desktops and, and laptops. How does that change the experience of the game if they're no longer literally texting with this bot? Yeah, I think it like completely changes it. I was really, um, I didn't want to do it 
for a long time because I like specifically made this game for the medium of phones, you know, thinking about intimacy and like sexting is obviously something you only do on phones. Um, so putting it, I mean, I couldn't keep it on there forever because it was kind of like expensive um, to do it and Twine is like a more accessible thing for a lot of people. Uh, so I did make it on Twine and I kind of refigured it a little bit. So it was more like cyber sex, uh, like old school chat rooms, um, rather than texting. There have been quite a spate of games lately using that as a medium. And I don't know how many games quantify as a spate, but I'm thinking <laughs> of, uh, Christine Love's game, a love story, which is set on BBSs. And there's a game coming out called Emily is away, which is set in an AOL chat room. And so it seems like, I don't know if this is some sort of a nostalgia for the 90s, but it seems like people are starting to explore that as a gaming interface or environment. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Of a, um, I actually don't know too much about it, but thinking about Nina Freeman's new game, Sybil, Sybil? I don't know even how to say it, Um but, like, she had a promo video of herself as, like, 18-year-old in her room. And I think that that is, like, us kind of youngish, 20-something game makers are kind of getting old enough and to look back on the beginnings of our sexuality and, like, how how the internet, like, really affected um, developing our sexuality and sharing it. And so, you know, thinking back to when I was in, like, when I was so young, young, even before I, like, had a sense of my own sexuality, like, being on chat rooms and, and talking with people and, like, um, people wanting to engage in cyber sex and stuff. And so I think it's kind of our age and, and us looking back more than any sort of nostalgia. Back in those early days, one of the very first questions you were likely to receive upon entering a chat room was ASL. People want to know your age, sex, and le and location. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I never quite felt safe answering those questions. <laughs> I, I rarely got them. I wasn't on AOL. I was on other services. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that does seem to be. Um, I also just read Lee Alexander's book, Breathing Machine about mm -hmm. how she grew up with computers and how she made many of her friends online. And it's really interesting to look at the impact that these media and these eras have had on shaping our identities, which I see now can also include your gender identity and your sexual identity. Yeah. Hmm. I just found the link to Nina's game, and I too have no idea how to pronounce it. <laughs> but <laughs> but there will be a link in the show notes. Uh, looks like it's a game that's still in development. You can sign up for email updates or watch the trailer. So a lot of games and media in general is criticized for having too much violence and too much sex. And for a long time, video games got mostly the violence brunt of that with stuff like Mortal Kombat. But as games get more realistic, we have stuff like Grand Theft Auto, which had the hot coffee scandal, and we have more games having... What is the hot coffee scandal? Sorry oh, to interrupt. Oh, no, that's a great question. I'm sorry. I shouldn't assume because I don't know who's listening. Uh, so this was Grand Theft Auto 3 where the PC version of the game shipped on CD with some art assets that were not used in the game where uh, you were allowed to... Well, a woman would invite you up to her apartment for hot coffee and the screen would fade to black, and the next thing you know, you're basically putting on your shoes and leaving mm -hmm. her room. And so it's implied what happened in between those two scenes. Right. Uh, but some hackers found the art assets, and apparently there's some sort of a sex mini game, 
that you could participate in and watch so it was no longer subtle or implied and hackers found a way to restore that aspect of the game and once that became playable the game basically went from an m rating to an ao rating and had to be pulled from shelves while grand uh, while rockstar recoded it to not have those assets and a lot of people, especially parents, were very concerned that their children were playing an AO game, even though these assets were only available on the PC version, not the console version, and only through hacking. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the very first sex scandals in video games, basically. Um, and so ever since then, and as technology has progressed to the point where we can talk about sex in video games and have characters getting married and procreating. Uh, Video games now seem as subjected to criticisms regarding violence and sex as television has always been. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that that's holding back the medium as an artistic expressive outlet? (laughs) I definitely, (laughs) I don't think video games like needs more violence and more sexuality. Um, I don't think, yeah, that it's holding that back at all. Um, I don't think that's the way it should go. Although, of course, that's the way that a lot of studios are pushing it to go. But I think it's more to do with like what kind of violence and what kind of um, sex we see. We see a lot of um, violence targeted at people of color uh, done by white people. And we see a lot of violence um, of women and violence of against like mental illness um though like violence is part of the world and i think that it's something that should be explored um but it's not always in in that in that way that we need to see it or to be encouraging it even to participate in like it can be a critique of violence going around the world or can be a critique of of uh, violence against women uh and still kind of like have the violence and show the brutality Um, but kind of like direct the engagement in a different way. And when it comes to sexuality, it's like, I don't, um, sex is, is part of life. And I don't think it's something that we need to shield from people and children. Um, but it is like the sex that we see on TV and the sex that we see in video games is, uh, white heteronormative people having like very heteronormative sex. And so it's so limiting for those of us who can't identify with that or don't want to identify with that. Um, whereas if we had sex that was showed a fuller range, like including kinks and, uh, including queerness and, and different kinds of bodies and people with disabilities, um, like that would be better. So I'm, I'm definitely would never argue for like less sex in video games or less violence, but kind of like to think about what kind of violence and what kind of sex we're showing and why we're showing it. It should be substantial and constructive as opposed to just gratuitous. It should not be uh, I, I, the most gratuitous example I can think of as BMX Triple X. It was a off-roading cycling game that came off the GameCube, I think, where you could unlock topless women to ride the bicycles. <laughs> and it didn't affect the gameplay, but it was nonetheless a selling point of the game. And I think most people universally derided that as not a constructive use of sexuality in a video yeah. game. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't always have to be constructive or critical or analytical. It can be just like a part of life, you know. I can't think of any, but I'm sure there are video games and media that are just like, hey, there's 
there's this lesbian parent couple and like they're just part of life or oh I just had had sex with my with my partner and it was it was like part of life like it doesn't always have to be this big huge deal um yeah Right. I I feel like the most narrow-minded individuals in our society, whenever they encounter any evidence of non-heteronormative lifestyles, they feel like it's being shoved down their throats. Yeah, yeah. And that is such an exaggeration of the situation, and I don't understand their insistence on continuing to be catered to among the privileged. Mm-hmm. So frustrating. Anyway... Some of your other games, Feminist, Confessional, and Techno Tarot, the latter of which I played at different games, uh, has a limited amount of player input required. And I think perhaps this ties back into a comment you made at the top of this show, which is that video games are very similar to interactive video. So can you talk a little bit about exactly what the player's role is in those games where the agency is limited? I think agency is limited in all video games. Uh, Even the ones that are like, you have all total control. It's like a really false sense of it. You know, you're still working within um, rules set by someone else or a group of other people. Um, And you're really also limited by the controllers that you use or the keyboard. Um, That's really limiting, like, how you express what you're feeling from the video game and it it kind of funnels into a specific way. So I don't think there's like a lot of agency. So I don't see those, those two specific games as having like a more limited sense of agency than, than anything else. So it's not really possible therefore to quantify the amount of agency a player has. I mean, you you could like, I'm sure, well, quantify not as like the specific scale of like between one and a hundred, but you can do like something rough, like more or less, like, um, yeah. So what was your interest in making those games? Because at least on, from my end, and maybe this is a false dichotomy, I see them as being something slightly different from sex adventure or medication meditation. There's still, again, that connective tissue. I can see that this is a Kara Stone product, but they still feel a little different to me. So what what was your goal in making those two games? I love like Kara Stone product TM. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, I mean, there are a few games where you can play and you can say, "Yeah, I totally see how this came from this developer or this mm-hmm. studio." And there have been a few instances where I've been able to look at a game that I've never seen before and say, "Oh, I bet this person worked on it." And I look in the credits, I'm like, "Yeah, they, that person has an, a stamp that they basically put on their games." And I think your games have that. Oh, that's cool. And, and it's it's meant as a good thing. I, I don't yeah. in any way, shape, or form mean to say that you're limited to a specific kind of game. I mean that... Yeah, I don't feel that. Yeah, you're infusing your products, your games, with an essence. Yeah. Um, yeah, with those games, like, I feel they're all, like, really similar in that they all are kind of exploring different feelings, you know, with um, feminist, confessional... It's a lot about like thinking back on things that I used to think about and feeling like, ooh, that was not good. <laughs> and there's in, in a lot of activism, like it's not a lot of people pretend like they came out knowing everything, even though things change every year. Um, and so I think it's important to like look back and be like, I used to think this, but now I've changed and kind of like repent for this. And I promise that I'll be better and more accepting of things. Um, also just think it's funny. Uh, and Techno Tarot is the same. 
kind of like an exploration of feelings and a reflection on on yourself on different topics so like a real tarot reading um it's it's like a reflection on what's going on in your life right now and uh, a way of opening up a conversation either with other people around you or with yourself and techno tarot and sex adventure are really similar in that they're both written as um as if it's from an ai um when i did that again for another game that uh or i made a prototype for and so I don't know, I write a lot as a robot, maybe, but um, they're kind of like funny and sassy and kind of a weird juxtaposition, I feel like, between Sex Adventure and Techno Tarot. They have like this juxtaposition between um, a lot of humanness, like human sexuality and uh, human spirituality, and then like straight up cold robot AI. And like that dichotomy is, is really interesting to me because I feel it a lot because I'm like this huge hippie and uh, <laughs> like do yoga every second of the day and like use all natural products, but I make video games. And so I don't really feel like accepted in either of the worlds because um, I'm like too into technology for all my hippie friends. But then like all my video game friends are like, Wi-Fi isn't bad for you, you know, <laughs> and yeah, so that di- dichotomy, I think, is, is really strong in those games and other games as well that I make. That's really interesting. I hadn't considered that there was this dichotomy between being a hippie, as you say, and being into technology. Mm. Feel because, it all the time. Because the people who founded Silicon Valley, essentially, 30, 40 years ago, people like Steve Jobs were so much into hallucinogenics and traveling to the East and exploring their spirituality. And maybe I'm drawing too much of a stereotype from that one specific example. I just watched a documentary about Steve Jobs, so he's on my mind. But it wouldn't occur to me. Like, Well, even Atari, that's a great example, that you hear about the shenanigans that went on at Atari back when they were just a few dozen employees. It just seems to me like the overlap shouldn't be that unusual. Yeah, I agree. And um, I think about it, I don't think they're that separate, but people like to make them very separate. Um, like a lot of the the more hippie people that I hang out with, like don't want to be around computers, don't want to have a phone and like, that's all legit. And sometimes I don't want that as well. And then um, the tech people that I hang out with, they're like, you, you work out, like you care about your body, you care about um, things that you put in your body and like often think about I don't know. I've had a lot of tech people being like, oh, I just want to go into like one of those sensory um, deprivation chambers and and hang out there, like, you know, kind of be really devoid of your body. And I think about that with the Oculus, too, of just being like really bodiless. Um, But yeah, I don't think that they are uh, separate at all um, or not totally opposites. And I think about the how technology was created in like the first uh computer programmer like Ada Lovelace described programming like weaving and weaving is like this like traditionally like very feminine uh handmade sensory experience and that continued on like that connection between the handmade and like feminine making and technology for a long time. So I think that there's like a long history of integration between body and the senses and technology, but a lot of people uh, don't see that or don't want to see that. I would love to talk to you more about Oculus. I think that might be a different podcast. (laughs) 
I don't have that many thoughts about it. Do you feel that it is the future of gaming? No. No? (laughs) (laughs) No. Is that because it divorces people from their bodies or because it's an Icelandic experience like the Virtual Boy was? I don't know. Uh, I think it's fine in that there are some cool games that come out of it and there will be some more cool games that come out of it. I have no idea what the future of gaming is. Um, so I don't really speak to that. But I just think about... I was at a, a um, sensory story exhibition in Montreal a little while ago. And they had, and it was all like interactive art and digital storytelling and stuff and really cool things. And they had um, this like little seating area of four different Oculus games. And um, four people would be sitting there with the Oculus on, like moving their heads around really weirdly and, you know, looking kind of like birds while we're all like really quiet in the room and there's a lineup to play. And it felt so dystopian and so weird and like, when I, I I stood in line and waited to play one, and then it was like this really bizarre story of like being on a lake and this you get hit by a train and like a baby holds out its hand and cradles you. And I was just thinking about the only interaction there is like you move your head around to look around. And it's just like a movie that you can see like a little bit more of it. Um, and I think it's hard because so much of the Oculus is dependent on other interactive things um either being a controller which is very limiting because like i don't have any controller memorized i always have to like look down and see what button is what so i don't always know how to interact when i can't see it um and then oh sorry and then there are other things where like you're have an oculus on and then there's a treadmill and then there's like a wind blowing machine you know you need all of these separate things to make it interactive and make it feel uh, bigger or more immersive. You know, that stupid word, immersive. It sounds like some of the demos that you experienced or described sort of fit what you previously called interactive video. Doesn't that, quantif- doesn't that qualify it as a game? Is it even interactive, though? You know, it's like I couldn't, for any of those, you couldn't really do anything other than look around. And, like, you can look around like a straight-up screen. Going back to Techno Tarot, it reminded me of an old 8-bit Nintendo game called Taboo. Have you heard of it? No. Uh, it came out in 1988 from Rare, which is the same company that made Banjo-Kazooie and Battletoads. And it was a tarot reading game, but there was no... It didn't really ask the player for much questions or information or input other than their name, birthday, and gender. And then it would just start pulling out minor and major arcana cards and reading them to you. Oh, funny. And when I look on Wikipedia, which attempts to classify video games into certain genres, the genre that they classify Taboo as is (laughs) non-game. I love it. Amazing. (laughs) I didn't even know that was a genre. Me neither, but I I relate. (laughs) And if you click on the name of non-game, then it says, see also video games as art. (laughs) That's amazing. That's so great so relatable i love the idea of like the game like it is a game but its category is a non-game right it's a non-game game yeah (laughs) fascinating i wonder how wikipedia would classify your games probably the same i would hope you would hope why is that 
I don't know. I just think it's funny. <laughs> like non-game. See also art game. <laughs> well, Taboo is so memorable, at least to me and to people I grew up with, because it was so unusual in that era. Mm. Like, hey, remember that game where it would tell you your fortune? <laughs> and what am I going to say now? Like, actually, that wasn't a game. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. So annoying. So there's one other topic I want to bring up, and I don't mean to cram a big topic into a small space because we could do a whole podcast on this, but when we attended different games, there was somebody up there talking about artificial intelligence, and I think the word he used was uh, sociopath to describe the kind of AI that is possible. Uh, basically, any entity it felt without uh, human interaction with the world would naturally become a sociopath, and you suggested that maybe we could use a different word to describe that kind of AI, that that was a form of ableist language that they were using. Mm -hmm. And then there was this great article I read that there'll be, again, be a link in the show notes, all about ableist language and saying how, you know, the, the, the crazy sales numbers of the iPhone, or that's such a lame excuse to do something. And ever since both you pointing that out at different games and then me reading this article, I can't help but notice when other people use these words, I sort of wince internally because I realize that these words have other meanings and implications mm -hmm. that the user might not intend, but it's just like there are other words we don't use anymore to describe somebody, say, with Down syndrome, for example. Mm -hmm. So what I'm wondering is... I guess there are a lot of parts of this, and maybe it's not wise of me to try to fit this into a, the end of the show, but first of all, what are the limits, I, if there are any, to ableist language? Like, for example, I sent somebody the link to the article about ableist language, and they said it was a real eye-opener for them. Mm -hmm. And part of me wondered, is that ableist language? Because it refers to visual abilities that not everybody may have. Mm -hmm. So what exactly is ableist language or what is not ableist language well i'm not an expert so i have no idea what the division points are i know that um soon as someone uh feels badly at something that you said or suggests that someone else feels badly or someone could feel badly um then don't say it you know there's no there's no point in saying it and recently um i was in an incubator that had a safer space policy and someone said something was crazy. And one of the organizers was like, Hey, just, you know, don't use that language here. And they were like, Oh, so tedious. You know, it's like, is it, this is this, that response to being told like that your language is offensive being like, Oh, it's so much work. Like not to say anything offensive or like, that's too much. Like when will all of this PC language stop? Will I even be able to say anything? It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Cause there are a billion words that can be used. Um, but in terms of like specifics of like what's good and what's bad, um, I don't know everything and things change. Um, people point out different things or words take on different meanings, but still always hold the history of the meanings that were a part of it. Um, so what I try to do is like always listen when people say that that is a, a an offensive word or it could be taken offensively. And then I will try my best not to say it. I mean, I'm not perfect. I say things um but i appreciate when people tell me that they they could hurt other people and yeah but when i think about 
And it's not just people think it's like, oh, crazy is this abstract word that not, isn't going to affect anybody because it doesn't mean anything. It's just a word and we're being too overly sensitive. But every time I hear it, like I'm reminded of all the times that it's been used against me, you know, uh, used against me as a way to take away authority from what I'm saying or dismiss me or dismiss my feelings or say it's too much. Um, and, you know, when that person uh, at different games was talking about um, sociopathy or um, psychopathy, it's like not only are you saying that these AIs are like have this uh, mental disorder that's largely made up, <laughs> um, but all of those people that identify with that disorder or have been diagnosed with them, you're calling them robots. Like you're calling them less than human. Um, and that's something that I have been called before too. Like other people have called me uh, like robotic and stuff because of the way that I express feelings or don't express them. Um, and so, yeah, language does like really affect people. I'm really sorry you've had that experience because I don't see, that's not my impression of you at all. Yeah, thanks. It's been a long road. <laughs> oh, thanks for calling me not a robot. <laughs> I, I apologize. Was that a form of ableism? No, no. <laughs> I, was, I was making fun of my own response. Okay. Yeah. Um, I try. The opposite, I mean, I do try to adhere to the advice you've given. I think we all owe it to each other to be sensitive to each other's emotions. And the opposite extreme of that is, uh, I I know somebody in my life who says, I'm going to say what I want to say, and if you don't want to listen to it, you don't have to. You can walk away. If you don't like it, you don't have to listen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's sort of the opposite extreme, and I don't agree with that viewpoint, but I think perhaps it raises a valid question, especially for someone who is new to this concept of ableism and, and the language behind it, which is, to what degree are are we responsible for other people's feelings? Do you want me to answer that question? <laughs> if you have any insight into it, that'd be wonderful. I think that um, we're all connected, like all people are connected, and we should be responsible for other people as much as um, we can be or as much as we feel comfortable. Uh, I think in terms of, of, and that has limits, obviously, of like how much you're putting in as like emotional or effective labor, like you can't do that all the time and you have to for a lot of people especially women have to um practice self-care because of that because all of their effective labor is going to other people but when it comes to language it's like how hard is it not to say this one single word and how much benefit does it have it's amazing like nothing is being taken away from you if you can't say um again for example crazy uh because there are so many other words. And so that responsibility of like, why do you even want to use a word that could hurt somebody? Like, why, why would you want to? Um, and I actually, like, uh, maybe almost a year ago, I told someone who was really, really important to me, and I was a teacher of mine and a big mentor. And um, I respected her so much. And I was like, she used crazy, like, multiple times a day and I like finally told her I was like hey when you say that that like really hurts me and at first she was like well like aren't you over identifying with that word and then she took a step back and was like wait I don't know why I said that like I don't want my words to hurt anybody at all and so that was like a moment of selfishness and so I really appreciate that and see I see that so much of like why do you want to hurt someone or why do you even want to take the chance that it could hurt someone 
and it can be really hard to bring that to their attention. As you in your example, the teacher had to use the word multiple times before you stood up and said something. Yeah, it wasn't at the first instance. Yeah, because we don't want to tell people that they're wrong, or we're afraid that they'll be defensive as that person was initially. Yeah, exactly. And like, um, I never want to bring it up because of how people respond. And they can respond in, like, such hurtful ways. Like, again, that time that that organizer near me brought it up to someone, I was, like, right there. And it was, like, you complaining about how hard it is for you or, like, how tedious it is for you to change one word in your vocabulary. Like, how hard is it for me to listen to that over and over and over and over? It's so ridiculous. There was an episode of the Less Than or Equal podcast on this subject, and I may be paraphrasing what the guest said, but I think it was along the lines of not using ableist language isn't necessarily all that personally important to me, but it's also not the hill I want to die on. It's so easy to change that one word. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Why fight over this? Yeah, and listen to other people who are affected by it. Like, I know someone who was like, I don't like the term people of color. Like, why is that big again? And I was like, look, we're not the ones who are picking this word. We'll use it. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what we think, really. Just refer to the experts and or the people who know the experiences and, and do what they say. It's not very hard. Right. We're not asking for a lot. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, we have spoken about so many topics today, and i it's been so engaging. I mean, this is one of the episodes that I have found most engaging because yeah. we, we really went off script on a lot of things, and you brought up a lot of points <laughs> that really ch- are challenging in a way, in a good way. And, cool. I, and I really appreciate that. Was there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to bring up? Um, no. Okay. Well, in that case, why don't you remind our listeners where they can find you and your games online? Sure. Um, you can find my games at carastonesite.com or itch.io slash carastone or me on Twitter at caraastone. Oh, I also just started a Patreon, uh, which was a very hard decision, but I really suggest people go and, and help out and support if they can. There, also somewhere at carastone. Ah, here you are. Carastone is creating video games or whatever. Mm -hmm. arts and crafts and games and weirdness yeah excellent well it may be a potential conflict of interest but as long as i divulge it i will say on this podcast that i'm about to become your second patron oh yay (laughs) (laughs) also since i met you at boston fig are there any upcoming events that you want to plug that you'll be attending oh yeah uh i will be at the queerness in games conference in october in san francisco um i have two workshops coming up in Toronto um, that you can find on my website for any Toronto people on like how to make twine games and then how to make DIY controllers and some other stuff. I don't know. Go to my website. It's there, I guess. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kara. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.
Can I pause for just one second? Yes, of course. Someone is like nonstop ringing my doorbell. 